Major funding for Backstory is provided by the Shia Khan Foundation, the National Endowment for the Humanities, the Joseph and Robert Cornell Memorial Foundation, and the Arthur Vining Davis Foundations. From the Virginia Foundation for the Humanities, this is Backstory with the American History Guys. Hi, podcast listeners. I'm Ed Ayers, and I'm here with Brian Ballow and Peter Onuf. Hey there, Ed. Hey, Ed. Now, we're doing a special midweek podcast to discuss the history of rigged elections. We're planning to have more of these midweek podcasts responding to major news stories in the coming months. But don't worry. We'll also be back on Friday with an hour-long backstory episode on your podcast feed on the history of advertising. So be sure to check that out. So to get back to the issue of rigged elections, President-elect Donald Trump said this week in a tweet that, in addition to winning the Electoral College in a landslide, I won the popular vote if you deduct the millions of people who voted illegally. Now, throughout the campaign, Trump claimed that the system was rigged against him. There's no evidence of large-scale voter fraud in this election. And Nor yet, is he citing any evidence. No, that's right. And yet this language of rigging, of being rigged, hangs over everything. So, so we thought it would be useful if we would actually talk about what it would mean to rig American politics. And what it has actually looked like, because it has been done. Peter, <laughs> let's go back to you. How about the early days of the Republic when everything was pristine? Was there any rigging going on then? Hey, how come you're asking him first? I think the system's rigged here. (laughs) Hey, listen, rigging elections is as American as apple pie. Uh, It goes back to the beginning. You might say it's baked in, as we like to say. Uh, Because elections before secret ballots and before uh, we got squeaky clean in the 19th, well, not really, in the 20th century, so we tried, and maybe in the 21st century, The whole idea was an election was an opportunity for a community to show itself and to defer to their betters. Uh, They would declare openly who they were supporting. Only a small handful of these elections were contested, and the contest was between great men. And the stakes were who would provide the most booze for people to get loaded on. I mean, it was... uh, We shouldn't get too excited about how great things were in the old days when voting was really a public act. It was symbolic, right, Peter? I mean, it was just a display. It was a real display. It was the the community displaying itself to itself. What's happened, I think, in the 19th and 20th century is that the power uh, behind elections uh, in parties and so forth has been much more covert and indirect in its means of manipulating elections. Yeah, in the 19th century, if you're a real man, and you are a man, if you're voting, you are loyal to your party. So in such a situation, anything that gives your party advantage is not being rigged. It's being on the side of justice and, and, yeah. and loyalty. And wouldn't you say it's, it's also a public act? I mean, voters would march to the polls, and it was very conspicuous who supported whom. Yeah, it was the, All the, the, the trappings the of an of the poll of the ballot you're yeah, carrying exactly. shows who you're supporting. And so you find that people would do anything for their party. And any job depends on your party. So, Brian, by the time we get to the 20th century, the system is both flourishing in terms of high voter turnout, but it also feels pretty dirty to a lot of people. So it seems like an unimaginably long time from pantaloons and wigs and drinking (laughs) to the late 19th century where you have this party machinery grinding on with charges of corruption bouncing back and forth between the parties. Tell me that you do a better job in the 20th century. Well, actually, Ed, in the 20th century, we notice that all the people 
voting are wearing pants. And we also notice, especially in the South, where most African Americans still live, that they are systematically excluded from voting. So I, I think the meaning of a rigged system shifts dramatically in the 20th century from one that has something to do with over-exuberance and maybe a little mm-hmm. corruption, charges of dead people voting, to one that is much more systematic. And we begin to change that in the 20th century. Brian, it, and it, it seems to me that there's an underlying problem that we're not talking about yet, and that is the ideal of the truly autonomous, independent voter who is in no way influenced, intimidated, or rigged into voting for anybody. And uh, I don't I don't think it's a, a clear story of how we march into a, a brilliant future in which we never have uh, rigged elections. I mean, what, it depends on how you define rigged. If I'm being inundated with messages that uh, direct me in a certain way, that that uh, make me express myself in a certain way, am I being manipulated? Does, isn't that the whole point of advertising? You know, that's right, Peter, that the idea of this autonomous voter, the strange thing is that Brian referred to the travails that African-American voters, first men and then women after the 19th Amendment confronted, is that the mm-hmm. South went through an elaborate, open, constitutional series of so-called reforms that built rigging into the very structures Mm -hmm. of voting. Mm -hmm. Starting in 1890, so this is 25 years after the end of the Civil War, after the end of slavery, every Southern state writes a new constitution that says, here's the thing, the 15th Amendment says we cannot deprive people of the right to vote by the color of their skin, but we can find lots of other ways that are going to foster this ideal that Peter's talking about, of the ideal autonomous voter. And we just know that black men cannot be autonomous voters because they don't have any property. They are subject to the the Mm -hmm. whims of powerful men, but they're also— You're being kind, Ed. A lot of people just said flat out they're not very smart. They don't have the stuff— that allows them to be good citizens. And they build that into these constitutional reforms to prove that because here's what they say, that white people have the native ability to understand democracy. Black people do not. So here's what we're going to do. Even if you cannot read, if you can explain to me, the registrar, what this part of the Constitution means, I will say that you're qualified to vote. If you try to explain it to me and I'm not satisfied with you, you may not. And this is the understanding clause that people hear. And Mm -hmm. not surprisingly, black people simply cannot explain the Constitution to these registrars no matter how well they understand. That's because they're asked about the emoluments clause. Exactly. Or or (laughs) anything else. And it's completely subjective. And the other thing, too, talk about rigging. The white South builds this into it. Okay, if your grandfather could vote, you can vote. Right. What could be more mm-hmm. transparent than that? The point being <laughs> is if at one point before the Civil War, before the end of slavery, your grandfather could vote, then obviously you are white. So they pile on, on one hand, the great evasions of the understanding clause and the grandfather clause. On the other hand, they pile in things that look on the surface, as if they might be race neutral, like the poll tax. But when you make as little money as the African-American people of the South made, having to come up with $2 to pay a poll tax a year before the vote turned out to be a tremendous impediment. So, Brian and Peter, the sad thing is, is that 
rigging is not always something behind the scenes. It's not something done with a stuffed ballot box. It's not something done with intimidation even. Sometimes it was written into the very constitutions of states and stayed there for generation after generation. And you can look at machination after machination, but what you really have to look at is the percentage of African-Americans who could even register uh, to vote. And it's remarkably low in a state like Mississippi as late as 1965, only 7% of wow. African Americans are registered to vote. And I can assure you it's not for lack of interest or trying. Well, Ed, this is a powerful indictment with the conduct of elections in the South particularly. And uh, I'd guess, though, and I wonder if you would agree, that this is really in extremists uh, – a tendencies that have been out there in the country as a whole for a long time. Every time the electorate is expanded, every time new voters come to the poll, their right to be there is called into question. Uh, you suggested it can be on racial grounds, on genetic grounds, on cultural grounds. Uh, on gender grounds? You name it. And it, it seems to me that that's the deeper question. Uh, but the system, of course, has always been in some deep sense rigged. And that is the people who command power in the electoral system want to make sure that they are going to get elected in the future and they're going to exclude their enemies if they can. Peter, at the risk of sounding Pollyanna-ish, I would say that the electoral system from roughly 1967, 68, until the beginning of the repeal of the Voting Rights Act in 2013 uh, through a Supreme Court decision mm -hmm. uh, eliminating what's called a preclearance clause, the ability to proactively go in and prevent the kind of machinations that Ed was talking about, I would say that period of roughly 1970 through 2012 represents a true golden age mm -hmm. of the system not being rigged, which yeah. is why I well, find let's hope it, it's not a golden yeah. age, Brian. <laughs> I'm with you. So, Brian, you, you gave that number of 7%. Do you have any sense of what did that expand to in the golden age? Yeah, it's incredible, and it's incredible how quickly it expanded. I mean, to go back to Mississippi, in two years— Two years, it went from 7% to 60% of African Americans being registered. Wow. Two years. And I'll, I'll just express a personal opinion. What rankles most is this attack on the system being rigged today, when in fact, compared to, I would say, all of American history through 1970, the system has never been better. Yes, as Peter points out, we need to be vigilant. This golden age I'm talking about is beginning to turn to bronze, and I don't know what's below bronze. I'm not a frequent flyer, so I don't have any of those. Well, you know, if you if you read between the lines of the tweets uh, that Trump is sending out, uh, the, it seems to be that he's pointing to some kind of new systemic rigging, uh, right? And and maybe it's also true from the left, and people are talking about hacking and computers and things like this. Do you think that people are imagining some kind of possibility of a more large-scale rigging that we've had before, and is that possible? Well, I, you know, first of all, I have a lot of trouble reading between Trump's lines. But <laughs> when I hear Trump, he's talking of busloads of people being shipped into Philadelphia and all the racial connotations that it carries with it. I think in some ways, though, Trump is exploiting 
the golden age you're talking about, Brian, and the the fact that the electorate has expanded so much and it creates enormous anxiety. I think we have achieved a very high standard and it's a shame that it's being called into question. So, Brian, since this remarkable increase in voting that we've had after the Voting Rights Act, what's history looked like since then? Has it been sort of a plateau or have there been important changes in voting possibilities since then? Well, Ed, there was a remarkable response to the Voting Rights Act. So you have a huge infusion of African-American voters and, not surprisingly, an infusion of elected officials who are African-American. You can carry that out to Latinos and you can carry it out to other minority groups as well. And yes, then there is a bit of a plateau until roughly the last 20 years We continued to ease those micro restrictions on voting, how often, how late polls are open. And we began voting by mail, for instance. We loosened incredibly the rules for absentee voting. A lot of elected officials who took a look at who was registering to vote with the loosening of these regulations. We're not happy about this. And it is fair to say that Republicans have carried out a campaign for a good six to eight to 10 years saying, well, we got to be careful about fraud. They haven't demonstrated any actual fraud to speak of. Just extrapolating from what the laws could permit. What they could permit. And getting back to Peter's point, this, this is about power. And this is about whose voters are being empowered. And they fought back quietly on the state level. They said, well, we got to be more careful. we got to have start having IDs for people to vote. We can't just let anybody vote. They started diminishing the hours that the registrars of voters are open. Even diminishing the number of polling places. Even yeah. diminishing the number of polling places and, and then questioning the idea of a polling place staying open a little later because there's a line around the block of people who showed up two hours before it was supposed to close. These are all, this is the litany of what we might call the rollbacks. So in some ways it sounds like we have this elemental struggle for power, which is a perennial, overlaid with a whole changing array of techniques right. uh, at, at, from across American history. And we're seeing right now, we're kind of harvesting the anxiety and charges of the most recent array of changes. You know what, Ed and Peter, history is at the heart of this because behind the Voting Rights Act and behind a lot of the court decisions that led to one person, one vote was the acknowledgement that this nation had a history of denying large pluralities of its citizens the right to vote. And that sense of the power of history is wearing off. The Supreme Court decision in 2013 that gets rid of preclearance says, well, that was then. We need to design rules that deal with the challenges to clean voting now. Right. In many ways, we're being set up now as a reaction against the reaction, which was a reaction. <laughs> against we the call ind- that history. <laughs> exactly. History. Everything always feels new, but everything else is replaying, okay, this is the crisis we had before. How do we fix it? And so ironically, what sounds like a very archaic charge about rigging is actually a charge about very recent rules that have come in 
in broad daylight that have changed what voting is, intending to make it more democratic. Listeners, be sure to check back with us on Friday. We'll be ready with all the history you need to know. 